turn your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter, uh, chapter 15. 2 Chronicles chapter 15. While you're turning there, I just want to give a little bit of a background as far as the vision for the eight weeks we're going to have together. Kind of catch up to speed on uh, where, why we've been doing the study and um, kind of where we're coming from. And then we'll jump into the text tonight and then we'll find ourselves in Ephesians hopefully starting next week. Not a guarantee. I think we should be able to get through our text today or tonight and, uh, and end up in Ephesians. But basically, the vision of this group is simple. We just uh, really want to take you know, some time for an age group of, you know, you're out of college, you're working, you're, you're um, you know, working hard, serving the body, most likely in church. You're here in San Luis area, which de- definitely during the summer months gets a little bit uh, less crowded, if you will. And uh, overall, it's just that season of life that seems to be for people, um, one of, of, can be a lot of change, can be a lot of uh, kind of um, the gas pedal, in it, spiritually speaking, isn't firmly pressed down to the floorboard. It could be, hopefully it is, but it's in that season of life where you, you're working, you're, you get home, you have choices of what to do with your time much more than you ever had before, and uh, maybe it's, it's before a season where you're married or you're newly, or before you're married or you're newly married or you don't have kids yet. Whatever the case may be, it's just a season that really has been identified as one that, for one, just Calvary Slow in particular, we haven't really done a group particularly inviting that, that season of life, that person in that season of life. And so that was one of the motivating factors. But two is, um, be perfectly honest with you, I think if you were asked most people, they would say, uh, if you said, do you have the gift of, of singleness, they would say, no. You know, I feel like God wants me to be in a relationship one day, hopefully married. And, um, and that's kind of a weird topic to even talk about when you're in the season of life, simply because it's like, man, I don't want to look desperate, or I don't want to go to a group that's called singles, or, you know, all those kind of things, just because if, if you're not in a relationship, that can be a pressure, and we didn't want that. So it's how do you, how do you get a, a, a group started where we could pour into that season of life, uh, those people like yourselves that are in that season of life, and still have it just comfortable, and just look at it and approach it in a way. That makes it very uh, at ease. And, and yeah, you get to know people, but in no way is this an attempt to, to have a secret, covert Christian dating thing happen. So I want you just to relieve those fears right off the bat. Um, and, if, and if you do, I don't think you're going to stick around. If that's your purpose, I don't think you're going to stick around long because you're going to find through the teaching that that's not the focus at all. Um, hopefully, hopefully we have a much bigger purpose than that. And hopefully some of the things we are identifying goes into my third reason why we even have the group forming uh, during the summer months is because, you know what, I do a lot of uh, marital counseling. I do. I do a lot of marital counseling. I do a lot of premarital counseling. My wife and I have done, um, we've gone through uh, many uh, seasons with different couples, and it seems like the patterns that we see, they trace back oftentimes to that season of life. When you're out of school, when you're, when you're working, you're, you're, you're involved in, you know, maybe a job or a couple of jobs, you know, a few jobs maybe, whatever the case may, may be. But there's some, there's some things that I wish I had the opportunity to, to pour into people um, before they even came to us as far as like, hey, we're either A, looking to get married, or B, we're, we're having issues or whatever. My opportunity with all of you guys is to say wherever you're at, whether you have the gift of singleness, God's called you to that, or you're seeking one day to be married and whatnot and have that relationship in your life, I would say no matter what the, the place you come, you know, to this place in, or even in some cases engaged, um, I would just say let's lay that all there just in this evening and just recognize it as a non-issue. 
Okay? It's a non-issue. And why is it a non-issue? It's a non-issue because no matter if you're single, married, engaged, or otherwise, or have the gift of singleness, there's a challenge set before us. Just take a look down in your Bible at verse 2, verse 2 of 2 Chronicles chapter 15. And here's the challenge that would be read to each one of us, and then we'll kind of expand on this. And basically it says, The Lord is with you while you're with Him. If you seek Him, He will be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He will forsake you. Okay, let's read that again. The Lord is with you while you're with Him. If you seek Him, He'll be found by you. But if you forsake Him, He'll forsake you. No matter what season of life you're in, what stage in life, what your circumstances are, this, the same thing can be said to each and every person regardless of where you're at. But here's the thing. Some people wait and find it out the hard way that, man, I should have been seeking him a long time ago. Right? If, you, if you're just asking you honestly, man, do you feel like you're really seeking God? And we, we're going to define what that looks like a little bit more later. But if I were just to say simply straight out, in all honesty, before you and the Lord, are you seeking the Lord? Is He priority in your life to the point where you're putting energy and expelling effort to really seek Him while He's with you? You know, you know imagining all of us, if not most of us in this room, are Christians and, and wanting that for our lives. If we're, if we're not believers, then obviously there's another point to be established, and that is how important it is to identify that God is the ultimate. He is the only one that's truly worth pursuing. He's the only one that's besides souls eternal and all that's good so if we establish that as being you know where our base is that god's worth finding then the question is are we doing that are we are we expending that energy and that effort in our personal lives um to 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 really seek him while he's with us uh because here in second chronicles we're going to talk about this is if the, the the other side of that coin is if we're not seeking god if we're not we're not expending, if we can't look at our lives and say, yeah, the Lord is actually on my mind and heart throughout the day to some degree that makes me want to pursue Him, then there's, there's something that's going to not ever be fill, filling that place of lack. You could fill it with a relationship, you could fill it with a career choice, you could fill it with anything you want. Kids, it doesn't matter. It's, it's never going to be what God intended to be for you. Because it's always going to be a cheaper or not necessarily saying the thing that you're replacing it with is cheap, but the fact that it can never measure up to what God wants to do in your life by meeting you in that place. Does that make sense? So if you're longing, for example, and, and very typical for this to be the case, if, if, if your idolatry, if you will, and that evokes different thoughts in our minds, but let's just say idolatry, which we'll define in a second too, is a relationship or is marriage, okay? If that's competing with uh, God, in other words, looking at the things in your life that you cannot imagine yourself living without, or even the dream of receiving one day, if that's competing with your dream for God to, to, the, to the degree where it becomes an idol in your life, then you're headed for trouble if that ever were to happen. You're, you're setting yourself up for, well, I'm not really seeking God right now, but boy, I can't wait till that relationship, quote unquote, that marriage partner comes into my life. Now, what, what's wrong with that is we're trying to drive a, a car like the Flintstones, you know, just drill out the bottom and use our feet to repel it. It, wasn't meant, it was meant to have an engine and drive. The engine is, I want to pursue God. I want to seek Him while He's with me. And thus, 
and this isn't anything new, thus if he were to choose to bring whatever or take out whatever, then it's, then it's me and God still. Then it's fulfillment still. And then it's all those things that God is uh, for us. Okay, so that's, that's one of the things that, I, that having to, to be in the midst of like a uh, marital issue type situation, most of the time it traces back to, if I have to be honest, I really was wanting such and such relationship and really putting God second to that. And now I'm finding myself giving in to temptation along the way in a place I never really imagined I would ever be. And that is trying to muster up the gas pedal to go down again and seek him and to rectify my marriage and rectify the relationship that I have with God that's off. Okay, with that said, if we're all starting in that place of, no, for me, no matter if your gas pedal, spiritually speaking, seeking to God is all the way pressed to the floor, or if you have your foot on the brake, God's here. God wants you to put your foot on the pedal. Because why? Because actually he's the one that's going to drive the car. We want, our, or we want our lives to be actually in his possession where he's in control, no matter what he gives and takes away. Okay? So let's read this chapter for reasons that are probably going to become very obvious to you as to why I chose to start here and not Ephesians 1 is because we're gonna, when we get to Ephesians, we're going to find exactly why Jesus is everything we would pursue. He's everything worthy of our pursuit. And, and the first few chapters of Ephesians is all about how, what God's done on your behalf and what our response should be comes in the chapters 4, 5, and 6. And so what we're going to do tonight is establish why is there... Uh, an, um, why is there motivation for me to seek God? Why, what are some of the things that I should know? And we're going to take next week and the weeks following to look at Ephesians where Paul's going to give us every reason and then some to say, Jesus, you are worth it. Even if some of these things go by the wayside along the way because of how great you are. And then ultimately we'll be applying that in how we're treating one another in the body. So let's read this. The background is this. The nation is divided into two camps. I'll try and keep it real brief. But there's some definitely important things as far as the background goes. Uh, the nation's in two camps. There's, we're talking about Judah today or tonight. So Judah's to the south. You guys know Israel's to the north. It's a, they went through civil war. Israel in the north. Judah's in the south. We're talking about Judah. One of the kings of Judah is named Asa. It's probably Asa or something Hebrew sounding. But I'm just going to call him Asa because I'm, I'm in, U, in the U.S. And uh, so we'll call him King Asa. It's really, it's really easy to remember if he was a good king or not. Why? Because in the Lord's eyes, um, he was loyal all his days, it says in the end of this chapter. So he gets an A. His grade is an A. Okay? Um, didn't mean that he didn't have any issues, but he was a good king. So remember, wow, was he a good king or not? Well, Asa, was a, he got an A. But anyway, so he's, he's, on the, um, he's been a pretty busy king. Uh, one of the things he had to attend to in chapter 14 is that he had these guys called the Ethiopians. They were coming hard against the kingdom of Judah. And uh, basically when Ethiopia came to battle this, uh, this, the people that he was leading, they came with a million-man army. Ethiopians came down into Judah with a million-man army. And just so, um, so the story goes, Judah had to respond with half the men. So they are about 500, a little bit over 500,000, 580 or something like that. Anyways, this is more or less two-to-one odds. We're talking, you know, hand-to-hand combat, the whole nine yards. So you're outnumbered two to one, and they have a million. 
he's been through a real stressful time with the nation of Judah, with the king of Judah, and they actually win. Asa cries out to the Lord, chapter 14, and he basically says this. If you look down at verse 11, this is Asa's response to the invasion. And basically he says, it's, it records this, Asa cried out to the Lord his God and said, Lord, it's nothing for you to help, whether with many or with those who have no power at all. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rest on you. And in your name we go against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Do not let man prevail against you. And the Lord delivers them. Man, quite an amazing time for the kingdom. Chapter 15 comes in right on the heels of that happening. So you can imagine if you defeated the Ethiopians, you're feeling pretty good about how things are going. But get this. Sometimes the whole story isn't told in the circumstances of what God's doing in the moment. We're going to see he needed some more encouragement to lead the people to seek the Lord. So this is where we pick up in chapter 15. Now the Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded. And he went out to meet King Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and all Benjamin, that's the southern kingdom. The Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time, Israel has been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their trouble they turned to the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found by them. And in those times, there was no peace to the one who went out, nor to the one who came in. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the lands. So nation was destroyed by nation, and city destroyed by city. For God troubled them with every adversity. But you, be strong, and don't let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded. And when Asa heard these words, and the prophecy of Oded, or Azariah, son of Oded, the prophet, he took courage. King Asa takes courage. And get this, he removes the abominable idols that were left from the land of Judah and Benjamin, and from all the cities which he had taken in the mountains of Ephraim. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. And then he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those who dwelt with them from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon. For they came over to him in great numbers from Israel, that is the northern tribes, when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. So they gathered together at Jerusalem in the third month, in the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. And they offered the Lord at that time seven hundred bulls, and 7,000 sheep from the spoil they had brought. Now, that was all from the Ethiopian battle. Then they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. So here comes, Azariah comes with a message. You guys need to seek God while he can be found by you. If you forsake him, he'll forsake you. It gives a background that a long time the situation is they'd been without God, without a teaching priest, without the law. And then God brought... Issues into their lives that cause them to seek him in their trouble. There's the background. Asa hears it. He responds appropriately by removing all the idolatry in the land. The opportunities for the Israelites to, to go to false gods. And then he starts restoring the altar. To get that at the temple, he's restoring the worship of Jehovah God. And then the people respond this way. Which, okay, I'm just going to say before we read the next verses. That here's what we're going to do. Okay, verbatim of what they did. They entered into a covenant, verse 12, to seek the Lord God of their fathers with all their heart and with all their soul. And whoever would not seek the Lord God of Israel was to be put to death, whether small or great, whether man or woman. 
Yeah, we got one person paying attention. Can you imagine? This is, the, this is not Asa saying, hey, guys, I got an idea. This is like, hey, everybody's in agreement that pursuing the Lord, this is what I want to apply to us. I'm not going to kill anybody. Hopefully you won't kill me. That was a joke. But, but here, look at what they're doing. They're taking, seeking the Lord in that issue of, of finding the Lord and seeking Him and putting all of their energy into the number one priority, which is to be, to be seeking after Lord God, the, the King of Kings. And they, they saw it as a, not an optional thing, but a life and death issue. A life and death issue. When was the last time you thought of your relationship with the Lord as a life and death issue? As in, Lord, if I can't find you or you're not to be found, or I have the opportunity to find you, seek you, seek after you, go after your heart, have my life transformed by you, then it's better for me to just be taken out of this whole thing entirely. I'm not encouraging anybody to go commit suicide because they think it's all over with. That's why we're here, right? I'm, I'm here to encourage you that it's a good thing that God will respond as we respond to Him by just simple prayer that says, God, I want to seek you. I don't have it in me right now, but I want to. And I want to I have a seeking heart that surpasses where I've been before. Some of us have some great testimony of how God's worked in your life, and it almost could have been two to one odds, right, for you in that situation, you know. Um, some of you guys could, could, could really encourage us with a testimony that's been God being faithful on your behalf. And you can look at that and say, man, that's all I needed. The rest is just coast. I'm going downhill. I can take my foot off the pedal. And it could have been that way for Asa, but he's like, no, there's still some issues that need to be worked out here. There's still idolatry, number one, because idolatry rampant in our land. We need to remove that. So we're going to spend a great deal of time here doing that. What are the things that are competing you know, with the Lord in your heart? What are those things that only you can identify with the Lord's help that says, these issues or this circumstance or this situation in your life is competing, whereas you can't be completely content until you receive it? Then we're, we're going to ask the Lord to, to really identify what those things are. And in your season of life, let me tell you, in your seasons of life right now, this is the perfect time to do that. Perfect time. Why? Because when you get married, or if you're already married, you know this to be true, you get lazier. You get lazier. Why? Because you're not trying to put your, foot or your best foot forward all the time. Think, if you're, if you're designing a relationship, man, you want to make sure you check twice the mirror before you leave just because you don't know who you're going to come across, right? Could be someone really cool. Or someone you're really interested to. Man, i got to check the mirror twice because I want to be ready for that. But let's just say that all that energy you put forward when you're married, all of a sudden it's not an optional thing. There's a chance where you might just say, well, you know, she still loves me. I don't have to have my breath smell very good. <laughs> She's obligated to give me a smooch, you know, whether my breath stinks or not. But when you're not married, what do you, what's the thought? Man, i got to brush my teeth 16,000 times before I get close enough to even... I'm not encouraging you guys to go smooch or anything. And yeah, I, I have three kids, 12, 10, and 6, so you use the word smooch. Um, so, so he's basically saying, if we're going to pursue God, if he can be found, if the prophet Azariah is saying is true that God can be found right now, 
then one of the things that we got to do is we got to identify what's hindering that. What are the competing vices and the influence that I've let into my life and let the nation uh, succumb to that needs to be removed before any pursuing is really going to go anywhere. Can anybody identify what I'm talking about right now? It's everybody's issue, guys. It's not just the season of life. It's everybody's issue. And once you're doing good, you're like, ah, Lord, it's all about loving you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fulfillment of the greatest commandment, I am, I am just so pumped on you. I am just so in love with you. And then the next month, you look back and you're like, where, where, where have I come? I was just, I was in right there in this lap. And now I feel like I'm so distant from what happened. Well, it can be. It doesn't have to be, but can be. Some idolatry has been crept, creeping in. Not talking about bowing before idols. I want to read to you. You guys know uh, Tim Keller, pastor in New York? If you're going to ask... Tim Keller, what an idol an idol is in our day and age. It's definitely not a little uh, trinket or a false god to, you know, as you guys know, it's not that. But his thing is it's, it's very much the minority of times you're bowing down to something. But he just basically says an idol is anything in our lives that is so central to our lives that we can't have a meaningful life if we lose it. Idolatry is anything you look at And in your heart of hearts, you say, if I had that, then my life has value and meaning. And if I lose that, I don't know how I would live. That's a good definition, I think. And my kids can become an idol of mine. My wife is definitely a possible idol in my life. Uh, My health, definite idol. Um, Financial security, definitely likes to creep in. Um... Good salsa on tamales. That's um, there, there are some things that I know I can list them right now, and I just did a few of them for you, that compete, that I say, I don't know how I could ever think of even living one moment without these people in my life. Or, or uh, you know, I just, more kind of a silly example is I just spent four days in the valley for, uh, <laughs> dude, the Central Coast has become an idol for me, okay? I just tell you guys from the Valley, anybody? Okay, yeah, 106, I think, and we were uh, watching our kid play baseball, and that was fun, but it was hot, and I was like, why do people live out here? And then, and then I was thinking, it's good that you live out here, because then you don't live over there, and then we'd be too crowded, and then we'd feel like we're over here, except for the weather. At any rate, idolatry. <laughs> Idolatry is what we're talking about. So Asa seeks to remove them. Okay? But next, he doesn't stop there. He replaces the idols with this. It says in verse 8, And Asa heard these words in the prophecy of Oded the prophet, speaking of which his son, Azariah. He took courage, takes courage to pursue God and do these things. He removed the abominable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities which he had taken. And he restored the altar of the Lord that was before the vestibule of the Lord. Restored the altar. In other words, if you leave your heart empty, just say, God, I'm just going to focus on the idols. Then your attention is the idols that you're trying to get rid of, and that's where it ends. But if your attention goes heavenward, in other words, if there's idolatry that's competing, it's taking you away from the true altar that may, out of simple neglect, be... Kind of, kind of run down. The fact of you being in regular times of worship, but the times where you actually sit down with the Word and spend some time in it, where you're not just 
you know, glistening off the surface, but you're digging a little bit. When you're, when you're on your knees, uh, figuratively and literally, in prayer, you know, those things is, need to be restored. And simple, just, God, why do I love you? Reminding yourself of chapters like 1 through 3 of Ephesians. Why do you love God? Why is he so great? Those altars have to be consistent in your life. Now. Not waiting for some season in your life when you'll, quote unquote, get serious about God. It's got to be now. Why? Because God wants that, and he's with you. God's with you. And he wants that more than you do. Why? You tell me why. Why would God want to be first in your heart? You guys are adults. You tell me. Why does God want him first in your heart? Faithful, right? Why else? There's no other guards that come before him. First commandment. He's pretty serious about this. He put a number on the list. There's been no other gods before me, right? But why? Or think about this. Why would God be motivated to tell us, seek me first? It seems kind of bold, God. It seems kind of conceited. Why would he tell us that? Okay, he's, he's our creator. He knows what he's doing. He has a certain plan that's going to bring him glory, right? Why else? He gave his son so that he could have a relationship. Definitely. He, he gave everything so that we could. But again, why? So we could have an abundant life. So we could have an abundant life? What was something? No one loves us more. He's satisfied. He's satisfied. You know, when, when God is first in your heart, the train has the engine in the front and the cars in the back. And what's driving your life is his glory. You're destined for his glory, which is primarily his stake in you, is not just so you would be happy, although that's great. We are satisfied. But the ultimate end is he's glorified while we're satisfied. He's glorified when, when he's leading that train. Because why? Because his plans are great for us. Because he is our creator. He's definitely do that praise, but really the purpose is so you can glorify Him. Not so you can be bound in chains by glorifying Him. We're not slaves. Remember, we're friends. We're His children. We're in His lap. God has brought us close to Himself. There's freedom. There, we're, our, our pleasure is directly tied into Him being first. So there's actually some really great reasons. But get this. Look at verse 7. He says, but you, this is to King Asa, be strong and don't let your hands be weak, for your work shall be what? Rewarded. God's saying, I'm a great, I'm the best. There's no other greater reward than me. There's no other greater reward. And your hands, your effort, your energy that you put forth in your relationship with God will be rewarded. And who is the reward? Right back to God again. He's the reward. Do you guys know when it comes down to it, you think of the one thing or the several things that really get here that you think, I don't know if I could do without that um, in my life, God. I'm just honest. I don't know if I could go on. That was like it for me when I was, first became a Christian. I remember that I wasn't a Christian maybe, maybe a couple months. And I knew, I knew without a shadow of a doubt what God wanted to do first in my heart. And it was my parents were up here. It was, it was, I have three siblings, but they're all at least 10 years older than me. And so a lot of the time it was just me and my parents, and I was extremely close to them. 
And the first thing God wanted to do, and I knew it, was have him first and my parents second. And I had, at the time, I knew my parents are first. In other words, what they said went. What um, my allegiance and my joy that I found in them, first. Those kind of things. Do you know what? He, he, he nailed it time and time again to the point where I had been a Christian for, and I can still remember this, I was a Christian about nine months where a friend of mine, or actually wasn't necessarily close to me, but we were in the same location. We were at a camp on Catalina Island. We were on a camp. And uh, he got word that he had to leave the island because his dad was in a bad motorcycle accident. Remember this as clear as day. And I remember on the beach later that night after he had left, we didn't know if he was going to make it or not, his dad. I remember thinking, God, I know, I know that you want to, to do a work in my heart when you're, when you're really my, true, my truest love. My, my, you know, no, no idols competing. I know my parents are there. And, I, and I'm wondering why, God, you wouldn't have had that be me in literally taking my dad because I know that that idol has to be removed. And, you know, of course, I'm young in the Lord. I don't know how it all works. My thought is if you have to get rid of idols, you literally move them out. Like, literally, I can't have my parents around. As I grew a little bit, it turned out the next year my dad did die. Uh, the, the fall of my sophomore year at Poly, I got a phone call that my dad had passed away. And, you know, in that year between thinking, why wasn't that me, God? This is the issue you're trying to do in my heart. Between that time and, the, and when my dad did pass away, God had removed them as the status of competing with him and placed them in a, in a place appropriate for them in my life, which means I didn't love them less. Heaven knows I love them better. I love them more like Christ wanted me to love them. And his will in my life was now primary to the point where I was saying, you know, God, I'm ready. And I've been a year, year and a half a believer in, in, in I know what it's like to let go of that. But praise the Lord, you guys. Praise the Almighty God that He prepared me and gave me strength and started working out those things so that when He did take my dad, like Keller says, it didn't destroy me. I saw God's hand in it. And, and lo and behold, here's the domino set up in a row. Here's my family. After my dad passed away, boom, my mom, boom, my sister, boom, my brother. My brother was my worst critic. He, he made me feel like an idiot when we talked about things of faith when I first became a Christian. He's 12 years older than me. And he's just like, this Christianity stuff is just, you're just getting brainwashed type of thing. And he, he was openly bold against my faith. And he got saved after my, brother, after my dad passed away. My, my, my father in heaven did some miraculous things to bring my, fa- my brother to faith. But it took my dad uh, going to heaven and, um, for that to happen. And so I know that the, the grip of my hands that I had on my parents had to be loosened. And some of you guys, even now, you know what that is in your life, right? Do you have an idea of what that grip has to, and, and don't you know I'm tempted to put that around my wife and my kids? A.W. Tozer, give you a little book club, a book plug. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called Pursuit of God. Anybody read it? Pursuit of God? <clears throat> There's a, there's a quote, and uh, you guys probably know who said it. It says, books don't change people, chapters do. That book, chapter 2, it's called uh, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing. If you can get your hands on that chapter, you don't have to read the whole book. If you're not a big reader, just read that chapter about idolatry. And um, it's specifically not about idolatry, but you know what he goes into and addresses this? It is Genesis, where Abraham takes Isaac up the mountain. And, and the description of Isaac to 
to Abraham is that it was his only son whom he loved, who he had waited so many years for, the promise to, to be realized. God calls him to do what? Take him up a mountain and sacrifice him. And, and we know the bigger picture. Tozer does an amazing job of saying the only way you can release your grip on these things, whether they're material or not, in your life, is to realize that you don't own anything in the beginning anyways. It's all him to give and take away whenever he chooses to do it. And he calls it the blessedness or the blessing of, of owning nothing, that everything in light of God's hand and his provision and being the creator is that he owns everything anyways and what we have in our lives is on borrowed time according to his perfect and good will. And when you, when you can even have your son be offered as a sacrifice to the Lord when he asks for it, when it's time to say goodbye in some way to it, Abraham was able to go beyond that into relying on God to get him through such a thing and actually we know the end of the story he didn't end up sacrificing his son. But the point is, he was willing to do it. So whatever that is, these eight weeks, I'm going back to this again. These eight weeks, I want to flesh those things out. Flesh those things out of, of us collectively and say, it's not an easy journey. God's got to do the work. But we've got to be willing to pursue him and be open for him to do it. What are you willing to lay down? What are you willing to say, God, I'm, I'm going to release my grip on this. Because I'm going to trust you because you are good. You are my creator. You are my savior. You were willing to go to the cross. You know it's best for me. And this is just something I'm going to say. I know it takes God's work to do it. But I, f- I feel like that's where I've been motivated to really pray for you guys. So you'll have the ability to, one, identify the idols. Two, remove them. Remove them. Pray that God would remove them. And you would literally, if you have to, distance yourself from them in a way that's appropriate and fitting before the Lord. And then three is to replace it with what? With worship. With simple, whatever, wherever you're at right now in your walk with the Lord, to just take one more step. Just one step towards pursuing God. That's all we're striving for. Just one more simple thing that will be included in your life that will take you towards Jesus. Whether that's reading, whether that's just getting away and enjoying a date with God. Um, spending a time instead of the television just saying, God, I'm not going to watch another movie tonight. I'm going to go out and just have coffee with you. Pray with you. Get in my car. Drive with me. Just one step towards God. And you know what happens? Is God is found. God is found right here. Those are the scriptures that we're focused on. And whether or not you take it as a life or death issue, it's, I mean, only you could answer that. But it really is one. It's that important. God is everything. Without him, we don't have life at all. So, um, verse 14, we'll, we'll kind of close here. It says, Then they took an oath before the Lord with loud voice, with shouting and trumpets and ram's horns. And all Judah rejoiced at the oath, for they had sworn with all their heart and sought him with all their soul. And, was, and he was found by them, and the Lord gave him rest all around. Notice this process is not one where they're putting on sackcloth cloth and, and gnashing of teeth. In other words, it's a joyous occasion. You see that? They're taking joy. They're saying, get out the cymbals, get out the trumpets. This is going to be an awesome journey as we seek the Lord together. We see the seriousness of it. We see the necessity of it. But we see the joy that's involved in it. There's a joy to be had. And so we're not going to walk around and say, well, what idol did you have to give up? Uh, I had to give up this idol. What idol did you have to give up? Mm, you know, Eeyore. You know, I gave up. Yeah. 
I'll be single the rest of my life, you know, if he wants me to, you know. There's a, <laughs> there's a, there's a joy in letting God take all that junk and put it in its proper order in your life as long as he's number one. So my question is simple. Are you willing to do that? Even in what he maybe brought to mind today, tonight, is to say, what are they? And how can we pray for you?